what does it take to tick Jesus off? <laughs> uh, what does it take to agitate Jesus? And some of you may go, well, he can't be agitated because he's perfect. Well, no, he can be, and God does come to wrath in a just way, a righteous way. It's never out of control. It's never reasonless. It's never out of nowhere. You couldn't see that coming. Uh, he never snaps. Uh, but there's a long wick that burns. Uh, but it does burn, and it does lead to a point of a demonstration of anger. And Jesus, being the God-man, demonstrates that he is also um, uh, a demonstrator of righteous anger. But what we're going to see this morning might make you uh, scratch your head because at first you go, that shouldn't be ticking him off. That's weird. Did he just have a bad day? Well, if he's the God man, he shouldn't have a bad day. He has bad days, but he shouldn't let it affect him and make him do weird things and start talking to inanimate objects. But that's what we see in Mark chapter 11. So would you turn there as we gain a lesson from Jesus cursing a fig tree. Jesus cursing a fig tree. Mark chapter 11, right where we left off, verse 12. We'll just read through verse 14 to begin. On the following day, now pause for a second. You remember last week the triumphal approach to Jerusalem. He's on this horse and everyone's singing, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. Yes, this is our Savior. And they're throwing their coats and, the, and palm branches on the road for the uh, colt to walk across. And they're treating him as royalty. And then he takes a peek in the temple, looks around, and leaves. Passage ends, right? So here we go in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay. Now, you might go, now, why did you read it like that? Maybe he used a softer tone. Well, sometimes you can see the tone seething through the page. It, it probably wasn't, hey, little tree, may no one ever eat from you. He's cursing it. May you never produce anything again. You are done as a tree because you didn't have figs. Now, there's a couple things that are weird about this episode, right? One is, uh, first of all, this shows that they just told it how it was. They weren't trying to cast Jesus in a certain light. They heard him do this weird thing with a tree. And they put it there for us to figure out. But what's weird is he goes up to a tree and starts talking to it. That's weird enough. I guess some of us do that if we're out there gardening and having a hard time. This root won't come up and we, maybe we curse at it. But he's talking to a tree and he's talking to it out loud so that his disciples hear it. And what Mark gives us is, by the way, at the end of verse 13, it wasn't the season for figs. So he goes up to, to a tree that isn't in season for figs, 
it's only in season for leaves, but the buds haven't become figs yet. There's these little knobs that are kind of nasty to eat at this stage, but they haven't blossomed into the summer figs yet. And he's blaming it for not having figs. That's weird. Well, why, why does he include that detail? I think he includes that detail to force you to make a decision right here about Jesus. Is he a crazy person that walks around talking to inanimate objects and blaming things on inanimate objects that shouldn't be blamed? Or option B, is this really have nothing to do with the tree at all and he's talking about something else? Option B. It's not about the fig tree. He's not upset about the, he is upset. He's not upset about the fig tree. And he is bringing a curse. It is not a curse against the fig tree. It's a, the fig tree is a, an illustration. It's an analogy. And I think Mark is telling us, by the way, it wasn't the season for figs. It's him saying, this isn't about figs. He's not an idiot. He knows what season it is. So start thinking about something else that is riling Jesus up besides he was hungry and there were no figs. Jesus is above that. Yes, you're correct. But he's not above what that fig tree represents. So, next scene, verse 15. Jesus cursed the tree as an analogy of cursing the temple, of clearing out the temple, of rebuking the temple. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So, two paragraphs ago, he comes in the temple, checks things out, leaves quietly. Two paragraphs later, he comes into the temple, doesn't leave quietly this time. It's hard to imagine the scene, but if you... Maybe close your eyes and just imagine this huge temple court, the court of the Gentiles. This was the one area where non-Jews were allowed to come and worship. Not just allowed, but they're supposed to be encouraged to come and worship Yahweh. And, but they travel from so far, they probably didn't bring their animal for sacrifice. And, and the poor people that couldn't afford the lamb or the goat or whatever had to buy pigeons. And so... Uh, they would come from different currencies, from different places, and they don't have the right currency to bring uh, offerings to the, to the temple or to, to pay for the pigeons. And so they needed a money exchange. They needed to be able to purchase the appropriate sacrifices to worship. There's nothing wrong with that. That was supposed to facilitate the worship of all these people flocking to the temple at this time. What Jesus is upset about is not that there's animals around and that there's people exchanging money, what he's mad about is the, um, the scheme that they were running to make money off of these people that were exchanging money. Okay? 
If you ever go to a place that by law they're allowed to price gouge you because you're in their place, uh, you know, $30 popcorn, you know, $15 soda, why is that not illegal? Eh, there's some law that states that when you're in our house, you pay our prices because we secured that bag of M&M, so therefore $8.99. But what they were doing was, hey, Let's take advantage of these people. They travel from far. What are they going to do? Go back? What are they going to do? Leave? They traveled all the way up, uphill, to Jerusalem, to the temple. And now they're finding out, oh, man, the, the pigeon is that. How much? You're in our house. You're paying our prices. And then we can, you know, maybe they spiritualize it. And then we can, you know, start a fund for cleaning the temple or whatever. But they were padding their pockets. And so Jesus comes into this place. First time, checks it out, leaves. Second time, he comes. We know from the other gospel writers that he took time to go make a whip. <laughs> if you've ever caught that detail. Um, sits there and weaves the whip. So this isn't out of control like, oh, he came before, saw, hmm, hmm, is this what you guys are doing? Maybe the night before is when he made the whip or he starts putting the thing together. And he uses the whip to drive out the animals and the people. Get out! You go, boy, if Pastor Lucas ever did that in here, that'd be a problem. Yeah, it would be a problem because I'm not Jesus. I should be whipped. But he drives them out. He's the one who says what his house is supposed to be about. And they had turned it into something else. These tables full of money, of one, several different currencies, and then the basket or the box or whatever they had of the other currency. He just takes the whole thing and bicep curls it upside down. So this is making noise. This is catching people's attention. Now, why didn't the temple guards just grab this guy? They were afraid. They looked at the scribes. Hey, what should we do? And the scribes were like, the crowds are with this guy. The crowds love this guy's teaching. But if we don't do something soon, the crowds are, he's going to have everybody and this whole thing is going to come to an end. We need to kill this guy. Not now though. <laughs> we need to figure this out. I love verse 16. I don't know if Jesus, I doubt it was just his physical intimidation. I don't think he, it's doubtful that he was some eight-foot linebacker type of dude. I mean, we don't know what he looked like. But verse 16, he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. It was probably just a look and a whip in his hand. Somebody was about to bring a basket, and he's, sorry. No one's walking through the temple at this point. There's tables upside down, money everywhere. The temple guards are scared stiff. The scribes are huddling in their corners, conspiring. And he completely takes over the scene. And then leaves. <laughs> he wasn't going to take over. He wasn't going to sit there and uh, make the changes that were necessary. But he was teaching, verse 17. He wasn't just flipping tables and saying nothing. He wasn't just whipping goats and people out of there and saying nothing. But he was teaching. Don't you remember Isaiah 56? Don't you all teach that here? And you remember that line where Isaiah says what? God's house is supposed to be about, it's supposed to be about prayer 
and it's supposed to be about prayer for all the nations. You guys took a place that was supposed to be about communion with God, and you went from communion to commerce. You took a place that was supposed to be about praying to God, and you made it a place that's preying on people. It's supposed to be a place where you pray for the nations, and you took that and you said, hey, let's take advantage of the nations. It's far gone, and it's completely opposite of what God expects of his temple. And he looks down and he goes, I don't recognize this. What is this? It's not what they were doing. It's how they were doing it, taking advantage of people. He says, you've turned it into a den of robbers. You're robbing people. You're not there to just provide them with the sacrifice. You're there to take advantage of them. And not just how they were doing it, but where they were doing it. This is my house. There's something sacred about this spot. And you guys are doing the opposite. Yeah, he's angry. What does it take to make Jesus upset? Take something that is his, and it's supposed to be used for his glory. Take that and use his name, use his things, and use it. For the opposite end, use it for different motives, use it for self. It's supposed to be a place where people learn to be dependent upon God, and instead they go, you know what? We're going to worship mammon instead. We're going to worship money instead. Instead of coming to God and go, God, would you secure my future? We're going, hey, I can secure my future with money. How do I get money? Well, let's take advantage of these Gentiles. So they're worshiping something else in this place that's supposed to be a place of worship to the Lord. And we might look at this and go, well, not that a church building is God's temple today, but as in our union with Christ, Jesus replaces the temple, and in our union with Christ, you know, Paul says, you're, you're the temple. The church body, the gathering, it doesn't matter if we meet in a home, a basement, the park, we're the temple, not this building, not the steeple. So when God looks now at his now temple, what, is, what ticks him off? And we might go, well, we're okay because we're not charging people anything out there. We're not charging people money. And even if we were, we wouldn't be swindling them. We wouldn't be charging extra, you know, trying to make margins on our baptism t-shirts or something. No, we're, just, we're just here to help people. We're a nice group. But let's not miss the center of this passage. The center of this passage is not not robbing people. The center of this passage was what they were supposed to be doing that they weren't praying. So if Jesus looks at a place that's supposed to be about prayer and there's no praying going on, does he go, meh? Or does the whip Jesus come out? I think the whip Jesus comes out. When you're not about what he's about, he spits you out of his mouth. Those seven letters to the seven churches in the beginning of Revelation, he, he commends them for things, but he also rebukes them for other things, and he makes it very clear, if you as a church are not about what I'm about, your lampstand will be taken away from you. And people go, well, I thought you can't lose your salvation. Yeah, the lampstand is the legitimateness of that church. There's lots of churches around with signs, websites, steeples, and there's no lampstand in there. 
that they've lost the gospel, that they've lost what it's supposed to be about. Jesus is not just upset that they're robbing people, although, yes, that's terrible. He's upset that it's a house of prayer for the nations, and they're not praying for the nations. They're not praying really at all. At this moment, they're taking advantage of people that are coming to pray. But prayer is the basic posture of the Christian life. It is the basic posture of the Christian life. Prayer isn't something that veteran Christians do. Prayer isn't something that kicks in when you reach this upper echelon of Christianity, but the rest of us can camp out down here in prayerlessness. Prayerfulness is the Christian. And many people miss prayer as the center of this entire scene, but it's so clear when you look at the context. We've talked before about uh, the Markin sandwich. When Mark makes a sandwich out of his stories, he starts with story A, then he moves on to story B, and then he returns to story A again. And there's some meat in the middle that he wants you to pay attention to with these two pieces of bread on the side. Same thing happening, something different, and then he goes back to the first thing that's happening. Well, here we get another one. He curses the fig tree, and he rebukes the temple, and then they return to the fig tree. And this helps explain what's going on in the temple. Look at verse 20. And the disciples have got to be reeling by now. I mean, he's talking to trees. He's flipping tables, making whips. I mean, they're like, wow. (laughs) Some of them love it. Some of them are scared. I don't know. But verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. He's like, man, that is cool. I mean, I knew it was an illustration. I know it's like an analogy. I'm I'm kind of picking up on that. But it's cool how even the analogy is showing that what you said had an effect on the tree. So the disciples maybe are starting to piece together the reality that, boy, if, if Jesus walks into a temple and says, hey, you guys are done. You guys aren't a house of prayer like you're supposed to be. And in another passage, he'll tell them that this whole temple will be destroyed and not left one stone on top of another. And um, we know historically that happens in AD 70. So these people aren't even dead before they see it happening, what Jesus said. So Peter sees the tree, it's withered. Wow, that's amazing. Look, it, it, it actually withered. And then Jesus turns it into a lesson on prayer. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Now this this is a notoriously difficult passage for Christians. We're going to see how we do with it. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, there it is, he's talking about prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, if your thinking caps are on, you're asking a lot of questions right now. If I can say to a mountain, move and be thrown into a sea, he cursed the actual fig tree, a physical fig tree, and it physically withered. 
Does that mean that we can curse inanimate objects, move an actual mountain, and throw it into the sea? I've yet to hear about a Christian that did it. Is that what Jesus is saying? Another question might be, okay, I get the mountain as a metaphor, but those big things, I've prayed about big things in my life, and God hasn't stepped through. It doesn't sound like what he's saying happens in real life. Just ask it. If you just believe real hard in your mind, imagine it. Think of the details, the smells, the touch. Bring it into reality with your mind and then pray it and it'll be brought into reality. Does that always happen? There's churches that tell you that it does. I think sometimes a lot of our prayerlessness comes from us trying prayer. It doesn't work. I gave it a whirl. It doesn't work. I put the coin in the slot. No gumball came out. I'm sick of putting coins in. I'm done. Does that happen to you? Maybe subconsciously? And then he ends with this whole piece on forgiveness. By the way, hot topic, forgiveness. Like, he just throws it in there. What does that have anything to do with mountain-moving prayer? Well, I'm hoping in our time remaining we can unpack some of that because I think this is where Mark brings everything together, the whole sandwich together. What is the fig tree about? What is clearing the temple all about? The temple was supposed to be a place of prayer. It wasn't a place of prayer. The fig tree, he wants it to have fruit. It doesn't have fruit. It's an analogy of this place that's supposed to be prayerful, and it's not prayerful, so it's done. So prayer is at the center. And when Peter says, explain this, this is awesome. The fig tree actually withered. He's like, yeah, big things happen. Like what I said about the temple. The temple is massive. You see this thing? It's massive. It doesn't look like this thing can ever come down. It's coming down, man. In several years, it's coming down. Because God wills it. You look around you and you see powerful entities like Caesar's throne. And you see armies that are at the disposal of that throne. And that cannot possibly, that cannot possibly be undone. But then you read Psalm 2 that says, no matter how many nations rage against the sun, if they don't kiss the sun, that sun is going to shatter them. So Jesus is saying, can I undo temples and thrones and kingdoms? You need to believe that I can do that. You need to believe that I can take mountains and toss them into the sea. However impossible it looks to you right now, however big the government, however powerful the ruler, I am the fulfillment of Psalm 2 and I will overthrow all the kingdoms. So there's the context of what Jesus is talking about. Interestingly, some commentators will point out that as he's standing there, uh, they can look off into the distance and see this hill with the top shorn, shorn off of it. It has the silhouette of a volcano, and that's the fortress of Herod, where Herod had his people literally chop off the top of that hill and make a fortress in front of it. Um, some scholars think maybe he's talking about that hill, representing that, that fortress of uh, human rulers that he's coming to overthrow. I don't think that means you can only pray about that, about Psalm 2, but I think that gives us context. He's not talking about lay hands on a shiny new car. And then when you wake up in the morning, there it is in your garage with a big red bow on it. Thanks, God, the gumbo machine works. That's us importing our wish upon a star theology into what prayer is. So we have to contextualize prayer to what Jesus is talking about. The things that God wants to accomplish in this world are going to be accomplished. 
but he uses the prayers of his people to get things done. Sometimes the people don't pray because they look too big. It looks too difficult. That's too mountainous. But Jesus is saying, don't think like that. Think about me. Think about my power, my ability to do things. Be, remember the fig tree. Remember how I cleared out the temple. Remember that it's about me. And you can pray impossible things for my glory. Not pray that your income will triple next year. Why are you praying that? Does that have anything to do with Psalm 2? Does that have anything to do with Christ's reign? Does that have anything to do with his throne being disrespected? Does that have anything to do with the prayerless state of the church? No. It has everything to do with your comfort. If anything, that puts you a little bit more in the camp, maybe, of depending on your motives for praying that. Some of you may ask afterwards, no, I want my income to triple so I can support triple the missionaries. Okay. But the shiny car, the name it, claim it, it's all pandering to our selfish motive to worship money and to get comfort not by depending on God but by depending on finances, which is the, exactly what's happening in this temple. I'm going to come here and pray and depend on God this intangible thing, I can't see it. When is God going to come through? I don't know. But I know if I rip off this Gentile, I can put food in my pantry next week. For sure, I know that. I know numbers. I don't know God. I don't know theology, but I know numbers. I know margins. I know bottom lines. And I'm going to make finances work, even if i got to rip a few people off. They'll be okay. I didn't rob them blind. I just skimmed a little off the top. And God is saying, this is a place, supposed to be a place where you depend on me for your income. You depend on me to provide things for you. So I don't think what Jesus has in mind here by impossible prayers is prayers that seem so impossible, but you know, you, you just came out of a seminar from a motivational speaker that told you to be a better you and to name that house and to claim that car and to get better, bigger toys for yourself to make your life here more comfortable. And you're suddenly in a camp that is unrecognizable to Jesus who's telling us, pick up your cross, Think about God's house in the future, not your house now. Lay up treasures in heaven, not laying up treasures here on earth. So I don't think we're supposed to be praying the opposite. My big impossible prayer is to lay up treasure now. No. So there's context there that we need to be aware of. Not selfish prayers, but prayers that align with his motives and his desires. Prayers that align with what he wants to accomplish for his kingdom. You can jot down a couple of verses that help with that, but 1 John 5, 14, Jesus says something similar. Pray whatever you want, according to my will, though. First John 5, 14, another one is James 4, 3. You should be praying, because a lot of people don't have what they should have because they didn't pray. And he says, some of you pray, but you pray with horrible motives. Your motives are bad. The reason why you're praying for the thing is a bad motive. And so you don't get it. You don't receive it. Nothing comes out of the gumball machine because all you want is candy. False motive, James 4.3. So those are some confirmations outside of Mark that, that show that Jesus isn't just giving you a blank check. Ask whatever you want. But instead, he's teaching them how to pray for big things that count, big things that matter, even if they're big. Even if you feel discouraged, you can pray those big prayers when they're aligned. Now, 
How do we know how we're praying is aligned with God? How do we know our hearts are in the right place? Here's one easy check. Forgiveness. If you're praying to God for something to happen, praying to God that he would reach Ethiopian pastors, praying to God that he would use Gilzinki to reach pastors in Uganda, but you have a neighbor that you harbor bitterness toward, you can take that prayer and throw it in the garbage. In fact, you might want to revisit whether you're a Christian. That's not me saying it. Jesus says that over and over and over again. If you don't forgive others, neither will the Father forgive you. In other words, if this is, if this is going to be intact, it's shown in this. You can't say, I love you, God, and I hate my brother. When Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, does he not include that peace? Father, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. Not Father, forgive us and forget that part. Forgive us as we forgive. They're supposed to be happening at the same time. If one of them's not happening, then the other one's not a reality. Who do you hate? Who are you bitter toward? Who are you convincing yourself that it's okay, it's okay, I'm fine, I got over it. But really, you're not over it? You're scared of the awkward confrontation of going, hey, this offended me. You're scared of that? Be more scared of being detached from God. Have the conversation. And ask the Lord to do what he needs to do in your life to forgive What Jesus is doing here is he's contextualizing everything he's saying in the gospel. How can I get to the point where I can forgive somebody else? Well, how is God supposed to forgive you? Here's the source. Here's the model. How did God forgive me so that I can forgive others? Did he forgive me a little bit? Was the light pass? Was it understandable that he'd forgive me? Or is it, I have no business being forgiven. I am a sinner. I have sinned. I am sinning. And I will sin. I have sinful thoughts popping in my head while I'm on my knees praying. I'm so messed up. But he lavishes his forgiveness on me. He's forgiven me this huge debt. How dare I go outside and wrangle somebody's neck for this much debt? When you understand the cross and when you understand the gospel, forgiveness toward other people is empowered. But if you go, okay, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to forgive today. It's like a forgiveness muscle that I've got to exercise, and once it gets mature, I can really start forgiving people. It has nothing to do with that. The measure with which you are completely flabbergasted by God's forgiveness of you is the measure with which you will be able to forgive other people. If you feel like God has just kind of forgiven you, but you kind of half expected him to, I mean, he's God, right? He's good. I mean, I didn't birth myself into this world. I didn't give myself my crappy parents, you know, whatever your excuse might be to say, yeah, I mean, I messed up, but there's environmental reasons why. I have this genetic thing. I got it from my dad. And I mean, it's kind of my fault. Then you'll always just kind of forgive people. So what Jesus wants to do is ground prayers 
in forgiveness because forgiveness is the gospel. I don't deserve to be in a relationship with God, but Jesus took the pain, the punishment, the death for me so that I don't have to. Now I can go out and not hold vengeance against anybody, but just say, man, I, I, I can't hold that against you. God has forgiven me. I forgive you. And we point people to the gospel that way. So he wants us to pray according to motives that align with the gospel. He wants us to pray with hearts that are able to forgive other people. And those are the hearts that are able to pray big mountain moving prayers. They know which mountain to ask about because their hearts are aligned with Jesus' heart. Their desires are aligned with Jesus' desires. What Jesus is looking for is a prayerful people that pray effectively. A prayerful people that pray effectively. So what do we do with this? How do we go home and go, okay, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want Jesus to be agitated by my life or by our church. And I think the most obvious takeaway is to not have our lives defined by prayerlessness. In short, he came in and flipped tables in the sanctuary, in the, in the court, temple court, for lack of praying. It's not just what they were doing, but what they weren't doing that they were supposed to do. And so prayerlessness is a mark of a lack of health in a church, to say the least. I've gone on about this, I've encouraged this, and we've gotten so much better at this. But I want to see a greater prayerfulness in our church. I want to see more people come out on Sunday mornings, 15 minutes, 9.30 to 9.45. 15 minutes, would you ask God to move mountains with us? Would you depend on God with us? Because if he doesn't do it, it doesn't matter how many instruments we have up here, how many degrees your pastors have. God has to build the house, and he's not going to do it if we're not asking him to do it. Do we say we care about the nations? Do we talk about God? Grow this church. Grow this church. Do we talk about it? Or do we really love the people out there and wish that they would come? You know how they're going to come? Not with flyers. It's not with a big mail order program, a bunch of door hangers. It's not Itasca Fest and food trucks. I mean, we'll do those stuff, that stuff from time to time. But that's not it. It's supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations. So we want to be a church that recognizes if God is going to do something big, he's going to do it because we pray big prayers, not because we've got big pocketbooks. We want to make sure that our prayers are aligned with his. And so if you're going to pray gospel-shaped prayers, I want you to go home and I want you to ask yourself, and don't just ask it for three seconds and then go on and move on to something else. How is the forgiveness in your life? What is the forgiveness meter? Where is it at? Are there people in your life that you need to forgive? See, that's removing obstacles. Some of you go, man, I can't forgive that person. That feels so impossible. Well, maybe that's your first mountain. Maybe that's your first impossible prayer is, God, bring me to the place where I can actually do that. We want to pray with motives 
that match God's motive. We don't want to just pray, God, give us a bigger church so we can be bigger than another church down the road. We wouldn't say that, but could that be in the background? Give us a bigger church so we have more money. If we have more money, we can install things like a bathroom, a wing, a classroom. Well, those are cool things. Is that really what the house of prayer is for? My house, my house will be called a house of prayer for the expansion of its building. But for the people. So if we're praying that God would reach people, we need to be a people-loving people. So when new people come, we want to say hi, and we do good at this. This is good. But part of the fellowship meals that we're doing is to get people to sit with different people, to not just love your own clan and your own group and your own clique, but to love across rows and across chairs and to love other people that look different, that think differently, listen to different kinds of music, that have different hobbies. So if we're praying God reach people, if our motives are really aligned with that, it'll show in how we treat people. And finally, we might want to take that prayer guide and kind of kick our prayer life into gear. Take five minutes each day this week and pray for a couple of the things that Mark put in that little prayer guide and just let that be a start of a rhythm. Start your day with it, end your day with it, do it over lunch, whatever it is. Begin that rhythm of prayerfulness so that when Jesus looks at this temple, not the bricks and the mortar, but the people, he sees prayerfulness. He goes, okay, that's a lampstand. That's a church that's going to move big mountains and reach the nations. Let's pray. Father, as we close in this time of worship, this song, we pray that you would massage the truths of this passage into our hearts and minds, embed them so that they stay with us, so that they resonate with us, and so that we can not just reflect on it later, but but live it out, practice it, and do the things that you're calling us to do. Help us to be a prayerful people. And as we close in this song, uh, may our minds be fixed on your goodness, your greatness toward us, uh, and let that um, produce the fruit in our lives that you want us to produce, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close in a song together.